awesome in this place. Thank you so much. Singing from your guts. I know we needed that today. Go ahead and have a seat if you would. I'm going to begin today with a family prayer. And so that I just want all of us to be aware of some things that are going on. And even right now, you probably saw the news reports of an accident on Highway 20 this weekend on Friday. Well, that was... Uh, Nolan and Madison Gale, and Nolan Gale and his family, they were part of our church in the beginning and the start, and then then recently have relocated to Roseville and Rockland. Well, Madison is Madison Crossman, and, uh, you know, Crossman family, very integral part of our church, love them, and um, she was killed on Friday in the accident, and he was critical, and uh, even as we're speaking right now, they just uh, took the life support off of Nolan, and that they are um, donating his organs, uh, so that uh, out of this, there will be uh, some person who will uh, gain an aspect of life that will be fresh and new. And so, if you would, can we just bow our heads and let's pray? God, when... um, we, we hate death in any form, there's no question. And when it comes at us and it's a shock, it, it hits us upside the head, it punches us in the gut. When, when those times come, God, we're reeling and we wonder if it's even real, if we're living in a dream at the moment. And Lord, I know that that's what a large circle of people are feeling today. People in our church family. Lord, I know that they're grieving this deep loss and that they're hurting today. And Lord, I know that um, that faith is deep. Uh, and uh, at these times when we have faith, we run to you. And that in the storm... As we just sang, that we realize that you are our cornerstone and that you are our only hope. And we cling to you. And so I pray now for these families as they enter into a season of grief, as they face what all of us would say would be one of the most difficult things, and that's the death of your child. And, Lord, the death of dreams and longings. Lord, that um, you would show yourself to be God. You would show yourself to be real. That there would be no mistaking that you are present. And that you are God on your throne. And that even death cannot change that reality. And we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for what we know about you, what you've revealed about yourself. And your word says that you are the God of all comfort. Your word says that you are close to the brokenhearted. Your word says 
that all who lean on you will find peace, for you are the strong rock. Lord, I pray now for uh, the groups that are around these families right now. I thank you so much for our community groups and how they were a vital part of a community group and how that community group has just basically moved in their house now, caring for them, walking with them through this pain. And I thank you for your body. And I thank you for your church. And just pray today that as your church is together, that we would be reminded of our need for you and at the same time, we'd be reminded of our need for each other. And that we would just be thinking about the people in our rows today, the people in our community groups, the people we serve with, and just wondering, God, how, how can we help them? Because there are people in this room who carry heavy burdens. Maybe not as heavy as that, but they're heavy. And so I ask today, Father, that each one of us would be able to be renewed and inspired in you. So in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, it's no coincidence that today we begin a series on God's sovereignty. If you want to know what Daniel is all about, it's about God is sovereign. And that God is in control of all things. And so we're going to learn together over the next few weeks how we can stand strong in tough times, tough times like these, but also tough times of persecution, of misunderstanding, of difficulty, because of God's sovereignty and our trust in him. We're going to spend nine weeks in the book of Daniel. We're going to cover the first six chapters, which talk about Daniel's life. That's what we're looking at, Daniel's life. And then we're going to dabble a little bit in the chapters that follow, which talk about experiences he had. And we're going to learn from that how we can stand strong. Now, the book of Daniel, or Daniel the person, the prophet, uh, it depends on which list you're looking at. Uh, some lists classify Daniel as a major prophet. Now, major and minor prophets, those terms, it, it's, it, whether you're a major or minor prophet depends on how long your book was, Okay. So that's what it is. So we don't know with Daniel exactly. He's in both lists because his is kind of long, okay? So he's kind of in that bridge between major and minor prophets. Uh, and so most of us, when we think of Daniel, if we have church experience, uh, our thoughts of, and memories of Daniel are uh, of a flannel graph. And so uh, we see, you know, little Daniel in the lion's den on a flannel graph and uh, or we see the three other Hebrews that were going to be thrown in the furnace, and that's what we think the book of Daniel is all about. Uh, but there is a lot more to Daniel than just a flannel graph and kids' stories. There's adventure, there's spies, there's intrigue, there's mystery, there's dreams, there's stories that maybe you've never heard before. And what I believe that as I've started my preparation and lived in Daniel now for the last several months, uh, I think that you're going to find that you can be encouraged and motivated to stand strong in a culture that's increasingly opposed to faith in the God of the Bible. 
that we're going to find that we can be motivated and encouraged as we walk through these chapters. Now, as I said, the primary theme of Daniel is God is in control, but I want to add a kind of sub-point on that. God is in control, so don't give up and don't give in. God is in control, and don't give up and don't give in. Now, if you're like me, you need those words because it's easy to sometimes look and wonder where God is and look at life and look at where some of us think it's headed or where it's at currently or look at our difficulties and we're tempted to give up and give in uh, and either on God or our faith or on our dreams in some way. But the whole theme of Daniel is God is in control, so don't give up and don't give in and walk with him. Now, I want to show you a picture here. This is you know, just one I found this week. I know this isn't Daniel, but this is just an artist's rendition of Daniel, probably as he's in Babylonia and, or Babylon. And his uh, name actually means, we're going to look at the names later on, but his name actually means God is my judge. God is my judge. Now, when you understand that the Hebrews gave names based upon uh, an individual's character, but also in their aspirations for that individual, and you actually lived up to your name, then you can understand maybe a little bit about Daniel as we go through this series. You can understand about the choices he made. You can understand about the purpose that he was trying to fulfill. And you can also understand that how this name, God is Judge, it defined Daniel's worldview. It defined his worldview, the way that he approached life and circumstances. It defined how he lived. God is my judge. Therefore, he could live his life this way. Because God is my judge, I am accountable to God for the choices I make. Because he's my judge, I'm accountable to him for the choices I make. Not accountable to the people who are trying to shape me or coerce me to compromise my convictions. See, when, if God is my judge, it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. God is my judge, therefore he's the one I live for. I live for an audience of one. Now, you, you have to understand that we, you know, we, Babylon, we call this series, that it's not so that we can be enamored by Babylon because the word Babylon is used over 300 times in, in the Bible. And every time that the word Babylon is used, it's never good, okay? <laughs> So it's not something we're longing for in that way. Babylon is a symbol of an evil system. It's a, it's a reality, and we can go back. It's in history, and you can look at all the archaeological digs, and you can look at the things that would say this did happen, and even look at what we're going to say in the story. It did happen, and it can be proven scientifically with archaeology. But it's also a symbol, and it's a symbol of a system of life that appears to be thwarting God, appears, okay, to be thwarting God and his people, and especially his people who have been given the promise that they will have a kingdom that never ends. And yet here it looks like to all you know, viewpoint that that kingdom is actually ending. So when we pick up the story today, it's going to look like their dreams have been shattered. It's going to look like a time of absolute darkness. And it will look like a time when you would think, if you looked at it from the outside, that evil has won. Now, this is the moment that Daniel begins at that moment. And the book of Daniel, it describes for us how we can live in a time of darkness and confusion and disorientation. A time when the God you love and serve seems absent or missing. 
How can you live with faith when the God you love and serve seems absent or missing? I like the way Nancy Ortberg puts it. She says this, the main question of the book of Daniel is this, is it possible to live with courage and conviction when my circumstances completely contradict my expectations? Is it possible to live with courage and conviction when my circumstances completely contradict my expectations? Another person described describing a time of life like I'm referring to uh, in Daniel and like we're going to look at, and Daniel describes it this way. I feel like all the pieces of my life have been put in a blender and someone hit the puree button. (laughs) And I can't reach the off button. That's what it feels like. See, we've all been through times like this, right? We've all been through, or maybe we're living in times like this. We've all been times through things when our dreams didn't come true, when our hopes didn't weren't realized. We've all faced moments where our beliefs and values have been confronted and challenged. And and I just can't believe how relevant Daniel is to today, to what we're facing as as a culture, as Christianity, and in the pain and suffering of life that goes on. This book answers the question, how can you stand up with courage when it seems like everything is going wrong? How can you do that when it seems like everything is going wrong? How do you maintain a vibrant faith when God seems absent? So folks, as we go through this, you can apply what we're talking about to your dark times. You can apply what we're talking about to what you would say would be the uh, culturally correct way of looking at things. uh, Where it seems like, just seems like, People of faith have been pushed into a corner and been told to stay silent unless it deals with you, you know, in your little circle, your little group, but you don't speak out into the rest of the world. You can apply it to this time when God seems to be being put in a box, when faith is just limited to personal experience. It's just about what we experience personally, but it really, I can't talk to you about my faith because it's not true for you unless you believe it to be true or relevant to you, unless you think it's relevant. See, Daniel shows us how to live in a culture that doesn't worship God. I think we're increasingly moving that direction as a culture. And so he's gonna help us to learn. Now, when we said stand strong in tough times, uh, three times we're going to look at where Daniel or his friends stood up against authority. So Daniel is not about us standing up against authority at a whim's notice, you know, just kind of like we feel like it. But three different times we're going to look at those beginning next week with one of them where they stood up against authority. The rest of the times that we're going to look at, Daniel and his friends influence, had influence because they lived their faith where they were placed without letting where they were placed influence their faith. Got it? They lived their faith where they were placed without letting where they were placed influence their faith. They were able to live it out. And Daniel shows us how to live in a way that's both glorifying to God and a blessing in the world in which we live. And he's showing us how to bring life and faith together. And so I'll just say this, you know, just kind of in passing and come back to it maybe later on. The best way, you know, if we want to think about changing culture is not to go out and attack culture to change it. The best way to change culture is for ordinary people of faith, 
to reform their culture through their local sphere of influence, through their families, through their churches, through their schools, through their neighborhoods, through their workplaces, through their professional organizations, through their civic institutions. In order to bring lasting change, we need, as followers of Jesus Christ, to develop a very thorough Christian worldview, biblical worldview. We need to have biblical literacy. So I'm glad just by chance that our Bible bookmark is in there today. And just, you know, we need to have followers of Jesus who not just read the Bible, but who know the Bible and then know how to apply the Bible in circumstances and situations of life. So, see, Christianity has been defined to be about religious belief and personal devotion that you have to keep in private. And therefore, the rest of culture gets to say what is wrong and what is right based upon their perspective. And it's not from people of faith. So that's another way you can apply it. Another way you can apply this is times in your life when God seems to be absent or distant. Seems to be absent or distant. I'm not going to ask for a raise of hands, but I'm sure that many of us have been in a place like that. Some of you may be right now. That you're in a place where you think God's not there for you. He's absent or at least he's distant in some way. Because it's in times like that when we feel like he's absent or distant that we can say, God, I'm done living life your way. I'm not living your way any longer. And some of you maybe said that at some point, and yet you're still here today because you know this is your place of hope. Some of you know people who have said that, and they've moved away from God totally, and they are living in in, uh, the strong sense of bitterness toward God and his church. And so we want to say we can be encouraged because God can give us the strength and give us the wisdom through this study of Daniel to be able to stand strong even when God seems absent or silent. We, we're going to learn that we can live for God even when we don't see him work. Okay, so that's kind of our introduction, okay? That's what we're going to be doing for the rest of the summer is looking at these stories from Daniel. I want to read the first seven verses, and that's all I'm going to have time to cover today is the first seven verses and to, to talk a little bit about how, you know, some uh, ideas about how we can resist Babylon. And when we talk about Babylon in this series, just know that it represents two things. It represents a literal place in history, but it also represents a metaphor for what we face today. So that's what Babylon's we're looking at. Okay, here we go. Verse 1. During the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah... Now, King Jehoiakim was put into place by the Egyptians because he sided with the Egyptians. And so he was put into power as king. And then King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Don't you like that word, besieged? You know, it's besieged it. You know, it's like awesome, awesome. And so what was happening is Nebuchadnezzar was on his way to Egypt to push the Egyptians back out of where they had moved into, into Judah. And on the way through, he saw this place called Jerusalem. And so he's like, wow, I think I would want the people here. I'm going to make this part of my kingdom as well. And so it says that the Lord gave him victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah. And remember that Israel was divided now into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Northern kingdom was named Judah, but they had already been taken captive by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. So here we are in 605 B.C., And he's coming through Jerusalem at this point, okay? Uh, And permitted him 
Uh, say, the Lord gave him victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. So Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylonia and placed them in the treasure house of his God. So here's what we have going on right now is that he comes through. He goes to the temple where the God of the land is worship. He says, I'm bigger than the God that you worship. And he takes their jewels and he takes them not just back, but he takes them and places them in his temple to show my God's bigger than your God. So it was that kind of deal. You know, guys do those things. My God's bigger than your God. And that's what he's doing at this point, just to show that he is powerful. Uh, Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief of staff, to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. Select only strong, strong, healthy, and good-looking young men, he said. Make sure they are well-versed in every branch of learning, are gifted with knowledge and good judgment, and are suited to serve in the royal palace. Train these young men in the language and literature of Babylon. The king assigned them a daily ration of food and wine from his own kitchens. They were to be trained for three years, and then they would enter the royal service. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were four of the young men chosen, all from the tribe of Judah. The chief of staff renamed them with these names. Daniel was called Belteshar, Belteshazzar. Hananiah was called Shadrach, Mishael was called Meshach, and Azariah was called Abednego. So that's what we're going to look at today and learn from why God had these verses in the Bible for us. So in one fell swoop, basically, what has happened is that the, the, the northern kingdom has been taken, the southern kingdom is still in existence, and still claiming the promise that God had given Abraham that they would become a kingdom and that their kingdom would never end. So they're still clinging to that idea that the, that the kingdom that they had would never end. So they kind of felt that they were not going to be taken captive. But here's what happens. They come in in one sw- fell swoop. Nebuchadnezzar comes in and he you know, besieges Jerusalem. And then out of that, he takes... This is the beginning. So he actually has three times he comes to Jerusalem and besieges it. In this first one, uh, that what happens is, is that he chose to take 10,000 of the brightest and sharpest and then all their jewels from the temple, probably all their other gold with them, and he takes it back to Babylon. So in this one fell swoop, they're conquered, they're dispersed, they're pillaged, they're alone as they've been taken back to this strange land. It's about a 500-mile journey uh, from where Jerusalem is to where Babylon is. And uh, Babylon, Babylonia, that's modern-day Iraq. So we've got going from Jerusalem to Iraq is what happened there, about 500 miles. And they've been taken to a land ruled by one of the most godless and evil nations that has ever existed. So they find themselves, I'll just give you a picture. They find themselves in a tunnel, and they're fighting hard to find a light at either end. That's where they find themselves. It's hard to find a light at either end. So what I want to do today is introduce the series a little as we're you know, talking about this. I'm going to give us three ideas of which I'm only going to cover two today. And so the first is this. If I'm going to stand strong in adversity, I must resist Babylon's influence. So when I find myself in Babylon, if I'm going to stand strong, I must resist the influence of Babylon. Resist the influence of Babylon. Now, the key to Babylon's worldview is this, and it can be boiled down to something as simple as this. Here's Babylon's worldview. 
It's all about me. It's all about me and my pleasure and my desires and my wants. We are, Babylon would say this, this would be their slogan, we are me first first. That's their slogan. We are me first first. I am the center of the universe. I, therefore, can determine what's right or wrong based upon how it impacts me because I am the center of the universe. One of the 300 times that Babylon's mentioned in the Bible, you can find in Isaiah 47. I put the verses there. It doesn't say Babylon in these as I've written them here for you, but it's referring to Babylon. It's actually Isaiah talking, God speaking to Babylon through Isaiah. And here's what God says to them. Kind of gives you an idea about the worldview. Listen to this, you pleasure-loving kingdom, living at ease and feeling secure. You say, I am the only one, and there is no other. Who says, I am that I am? Now, here they're saying, I am that I am. There is no other. You felt secure in your wickedness. No one sees me, you said. But your wisdom, meaning the wisdom of your age... And your knowledge, meaning the knowledge that you've gained about your way of doing life, have led you astray, and you have said, once again, I am who I am, and there is no other. I am who I am, and there is no other. I am the only one. So see, Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar's number one philosophy is this. I am the center of the universe, and therefore I am answerable to no one. I am. And there is nothing besides me. Nothing in life is as important as me. I am my own God. I am my own authority. I determine my own way. My my number one goal in life is I've got to find myself. My number one purpose in life is I've got to do what's best for me. My main source of wisdom or guidance is I've got to listen inside to what it says, what I say to me. Be in tune to that. See, these Hebrew young men, they had to resist the lure, the worldview of this Babylonian culture to live a me-first way, that it's all about me and what I want. Nobody can tell me what's wrong. I determine what's right. So how do we resist that kind of mentality? If me-first is the mentality of Babylon, how do we, followers of God, faith Believing people resist that. It begins with saying, I love Rick Warren's book. It's not about me. It's not about me. It begins with humility. Humility. Now, I put some verses here from James because I really think it gives us the antidote today to the me first mindset. They're on the backside of your notes. I couldn't believe how relevant the New Testament was in these verses to what we're talking about here. It says this, God gives us even more grace to stand against such evil desires. An evil desire is that I'm first and I call all the shots. That there's nothing wrong unless I say it's wrong. There's no outside source or no outside authority. I am authority. So God gives us even more grace to stand against those kinds of evil desires. As the scriptures say, God opposes the proud. So God is against who? God is against the me first mindset. But favors the humble. Those who would say that I'm bowing before God. So humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil. And just even though I know that James was writing this and I know he knew what he was talking about. You could say resist Babylon. Or you could actually say Babylon is the devil. 
And you could actually say that the Babylonian mindset is of the devil. And it's evil. The metaphor of Babylon. And he will flee from you. Come close to God and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts. For your loyalty is divided between God and the world. And how do we keep our loyalty be Loyalty from being divided between God's view and the world view that we're talking about today is through submission. It's through humbling ourselves and bowing before him. I will bow before him in submission. We're going to run into the issue of pride all the way through Daniel because it was Babylon's number one value. They were proud. Number one sin. God really does stand against. God really does oppose the proud. He really does favor. He really does come alongside the humble. And what he does, he calls us to resist the philosophy of our age by submitting and surrendering to him. It begins there. And so church, I would say today that if you're thinking today that I'm gonna give us our marching orders and we're gonna go out of here, Onward, Christian soul. And we're going to march out of here and we're going to go tackle culture. That's not what I'm going to say. I think the first thing we have to do is we have to get to a place where each one of us would say, it's about me submitting and surrendering to God first, coming before him, bowing before him, surrendering to him in every way in my life. So that my life can have an influence against the culture and the philosophy. So that I can withstand the pull that is so strong to a me first mindset. And he calls us to resist. To resist the influence of Babylon by surrendering and submitting and humbling ourselves before him. See, he calls us to be not of, not in the world. He calls us to be, let me say that. I'm going to get it really right. He calls us to be in the world, but not of the world, for the world. It's a real key there. He doesn't call us to isolate ourselves behind some kind of Christian enclave, four walls. And this is where our faith, and we, we give in to the belief that our faith needs to be relegated to our private moments, but that our faith transforms us And then other people see how we've been transformed and they get to see that God is real and relevant. Okay, the second thing we can learn is this. I can stand strong when I resist Babylon's indoctrination. When I resist Babylon's indoctrination. So it's not just as subtle as a mindset. There's actually a strategy, an agenda that Babylon has to change us, to get to the place where we no longer trust that God is in control or that, it's, uh, that we can live out faith in this world. So for three years, the Babylonian captors uh, put these four teenage boys, these young men, the Fab Four, through a rigorous brainwashing exercise, okay, rigorous. They took the brightest, they took the most handsome, they took the ones with most potential out of their cultural surroundings and put them into the lap of royal luxury. Nebuchadnezzar says, bring to me the smart, the young, and the beautiful. So what you can see right now, that Babylon here and Babylon the metaphor places the highest value on people with youth, beauty, and intelligence. 
Does that seem to be kind of real for what we're living in today? Youth, beauty, and intelligence. That's what our culture says. Everything tells you today that you have worth and value if you're young and beautiful and intelligent. And if you're not, we'll help you get there. And it's a billion-dollar industry helping people feel and hang on to the dream of youth, the dream of being beautiful, the dream of being smart. See, another way that they indoctrinated the Hebrews, other than just the fact that they picked only the brightest and the, you know, the ones with most potential, is they indoctrinated them through their educational system. Wow. They would teach them their language. They would expose them to their art. They would teach them their advanced, say, we're smarter than everyone else, so we've got advanced mathematical formulas. We've got advanced engineering, and so you can trust us because we know more. We know more than God does. So they take them and they put it, they guys, they put them in his classes and they say, you're going to learn our magic, you're going to learn our incantations, you're going to learn our philosophies, you're going to learn our spells, our omens, you're going to learn our myths, you're going to learn our beliefs, you're going to be indoctrinated inside and out by the time we're finished. We are going to do everything we can to make sure that you just don't know our world, but you know and embrace our worldview, our worldview. So for three years, we're going to change the way you think. For three years, we're going to bombard you with our way of life. We're going to teach you how to think, what to think and how to think. We're going to teach you how to act. We're going to teach you what to do. Become like us. Live like we do. I just ask you, is, do you ever feel that pressure today to fit in? To fit in? And in a way that you found that when you were finished with the situation you were in, that you'd compromised your faith, or you'd been silent or quiet, because you knew what culture said was right or wrong. And we're increasingly getting to the place, folks, that if you want to talk about what the Bible says, that it's not correct. It's correct if you want to believe it, but it's not correct if you ask anyone else to believe the Bible. And so the indoctrination comes through all of the ways that we're shown that man is superior to God, that man is superior to God. Another way they brainwashed them was through the privileged life they had, through the indulgence. They had overindulgence is what they had. The king treated these captives like they were royalty themselves. He gave them the best food in the kingdom, the best wine, the best education. They were pampered. They had the finest of linens. They had, you know, spas that they could go to, and they'd be catered to their every whim. And then they'd have massages and, uh, you know, uh, body treatments to make sure that their bodies were young and virile. And they had just all kinds of things he gave them. He treated them royally. And he did this because he wanted these young Hebrews to be looking at his lifestyle as the preferred lifestyle. I mean, just think about it. They came from Jerusalem. Jerusalem was living uh, in basically seclusion, poverty, that they lived a really difficult life where they didn't have luxuries. They didn't have the things that now they're being exposed to. Can you just think about what's going through their heads over time? This isn't so bad. I like this life. But here's another thing that was happening. 
is that Nebuchadnezzar was building in loyalty. He was saying, I'm the one who took care of you. I'm the one that gave you this. And so now their loyalty was being changed from believing in the God of the Bible to provide all their needs. And Nebuchadnezzar, the God of the age, saying, I will give you all your wants. I will provide everything you want. You'll have it all. Another way that they indoctrinated them is they gave them new names. And kind of walk through this a little bit just to understand the importance of this. So I got a chart for you. And so Daniel, his name means my judge is El or God is my judge. And they changed his name to Belteshazzar, which means may Bel protect him. And by the way, the new meanings were all the, the Babylonian gods now. So they changed their names from gods that their parents had given them. And this is, you know, one thing I'll just say to us today as a church, parents, that at some point you're going to launch your kids into life. And these four Hebrews were launched into life with a biblical worldview and the belief that God had a purpose for them. That God had made them and God had a purpose for them. And so even in their names. And so it says, God, Hananiah, that means Jehovah is gracious. And his name was changed to Shadrach. And that means illumined by Shad, which was the god, the sun god of the Babylonians. Mishael means who was like God, meaning that there's no one like God, right? That God is great, God is big. Meshach, that means who was like Shaq, NBA player. Actually, love goddess, love goddess. And this is where we get the term shacking up from, okay, just, you know? <laughs> no, okay. Azariah, that means Jehovah helps me, talking about that we, he trusts that God's in control and helps, and his name was changed to Abednego, changed to Abednego. So everything... Everything, you got to get me, everything was taken away from these four young men by the Babylonians. Their homes, their, um, the lineage that they had come from, their history, their wealth, their position, their family, even their identity was stolen from them. Now, this is what I love about having the Bible as our resource uh, for our worldview, is that when their identity was stolen, well, it's key to understand that God has a word about our identity. So here's what God says is our identity in Christ. And I love, these are some of my favorite verses from the New Testament about our identity. Peter writes, you are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God. Did you hear that? Your identity is that so that you can reveal God's goodness to the world. For he called you out of the darkness, the darkness where you can't see the light, into his wonderful light. Once you had no identity as a people, now you are God's people. So Peter's teaching us that we are a royal people. We are a part of the kingdom of God. We have a citizenship that's not defined by the world. And we have to resist Babylon's indoctrination. Our culture will do all it can do to destroy our heritage and our memories, to deconstruct our faith and push it into a corner of life that only speaks to faith, but not life, to undermine our identity, to declare that our God is dead and no longer relevant. 
third idea is this. I stand strong when I resist Babylon's values. When I resist Babylon's values. Now, this is where we're going to pick up next week. And we're going to look at verses 8 through 21 next week and uh, be able to uh, talk about the fact of how they stood up and one of the times, one of the three times they actually stood up against authority and how they did it and then how God blessed them uh, for doing that. But what I want to do is I want to end with this. I want to talk about the bottom line. Before I get to the bottom line, I want to give you just a thought. See, all of us live in Babylon in some way, okay? So just know that. It's not just a story of people a long, long time ago, but all of us live in a Babylon in some way. We live in a world that's trying to intimidate us or tempt us into settling for less, get this, settling for less than God's best, to believe that God's dead. Well, what God is going to show Daniel is that even when it looks like he's dead, that he's not dead, he's fully alive. He's not absent. He's fully present. Now, I wrote this bottom line to you even before the thing we prayed about earlier happened. And it just seems to fit so well to what I prayed earlier, but also to where we are. Here's the bottom line of the series of today. No matter how dark life appears, God is always, would you circle that, always in control. No matter how distant God feels, he is always present. Would you circle that word again? Always present. Now I'm going to ask you to turn your notes back over on the other side. And I want you to look at the bolded part that I bolded. It's actually verse 2 in Daniel 1. And it says this, the Lord gave, circle the word gave, the Lord gave him, Nebuchadnezzar, victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah and permitted, circle the word permitted, him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. What we learn from this event, what we learn from what, how Daniel, Daniel as he was writing and how he was reflecting on what had happened is we learn that even in the darkest of times that God is in control and God has purposes I can't see. God gave them over and God permitted, allowed this to happen. So the universal message of Daniel is that in spite of circumstances, in spite of appearances that may look contrary, what's true is that God is in control. God is sovereign. And I've told you this, any one of you have been to one-on-one class and I've talked about when my wife died in the car accident and I woke up in the hospital the next morning, that I knew two things to be true. And the first one was that God was still in control. Her death didn't change that in any way. And it's true for your circumstances as well. Even the most devastating, that when you come into those times, God is still in control. He is sovereign and he is there for you. He's there for you. Now, I know that if you're like me, that you look to the Bible sometimes and promises to keep you strong. And one of the promises that I held on to after she was killed in the car accident and have held on to many times since then was Jeremiah 29, 11. Jeremiah 29, 11. Now, what I didn't know when I first started claiming Jeremiah 29, 11 
is that Jeremiah 29, 11 is actually written by Jeremiah talking about the people who were living in Babylon. In Babylon, okay? So based on what we've talked about today, listen to what Jeremiah says. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says to all the captives. He is exiled. Notice there, once again, God's control and sovereignty. He is exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem. Now he's telling them on how to live. And this is what I would say that we can learn on how to live and how to influence our culture as well. Build homes and plan to stay. Plant gardens and eat the food they produce. Marry and have children. Then find spouses for them so that you may have many grandchildren. Multiply. Do not dwindle away. And oh, by the way, Work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for the place you are, for its welfare will determine your welfare. So he's talking to us about how to live in Babylon. And then he says this, you will be in Babylon for 70 years. But then I will come and do for you all the good things I have promised And I will bring you home again. If you know the story, he did. And then he says, For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. So basically what God is saying, and he's showing us through Daniel, is that it's possible and even commanded for us to live in exile, live in captivity, live in Babylon in a way that as we live there, we are showing our world that God's first. God's first. And we're living our lives, we're in our businesses, we're in our uh, interactions, we're in our play, we're in our workplaces, we're in our families, we're in our recreational activities. And as we do those, we stand out Now, not because we're weird, okay? Some of you are weird and you'll stand out, but no. We stand out because God is in us. And we believe, no matter what we face, and we show it by our actions that God is in control and I'm not first and I'm submitted to him. See, it's possible, uh, and I'd say it's even probable, to experience God's presence in the middle of times when God seems absent, even in a wasteland. Let's listen to this. I'm the first one in line to die when the Calvary comes. Sometimes it feels like the great divide has already come. I've been wasting my way through days, losing youth along the way. Oh, if God is on my side, oh, if God is on my side. Oh, if God is on my side. 
come before you and you are on our side and therefore nothing can come against us absolutely nothing and we thank you so much for that promise father and I pray now as we 
think about what we've heard today and we look at our own lives and, you know, where are we at today as far as Babylon? Are we resisting? Are we giving in? Are we being worn down? holding on? Are we doubting that you're real or you're alive or you're present? Father, I pray today that we've been encouraged that by faith today that we would say, God, I believe you're in control and I'm not going to give up and I'm not going to give in. Now I'm going to live for you. I'm going to submit myself humbly to you that even in circumstances I don't understand, circumstances that I hate, that I'm going to find myself in full-on humility before you, asking you, Father, to show yourself real, asking you, Father, to show me how these circumstances can become part of who you want me to become. Father, I pray now that you would help us to resist the messages of indoctrination that would cause us to doubt the Bible, to doubt the veracity of the Bible, to doubt the truthfulness of the Bible, that that would cause us to be longing for not bad things, longing for things that are going to replace you. And God, I pray that you would help us to stay strong in this wasteland. You would help us to look for that glimmer of light that would allow us to move forward in times that we don't understand. And that you would reflect off of us a light for our world. That's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.